Blog Talk Radio. You're listening to Radio Stranahan. Lee Stranahan, thank you. It was a privilege for me to meet you last weekend. You're tuned into Radio Stranahan. And now, here's your presenter, Lee Stranahan. Good. lovely as always. I'm just me. So hey, Aleppo. I've been talking to you about Aleppo for a few days now. And I wake up this morning and Aleppo Syria is a trending topic because the rebels, picture me doing air quotes. Okay, don't picture me doing that because it's kind of kind of a douchey move. But Think of me doing air quotes. Don't picture me. Just think of me doing air quotes. The rebels, I've discussed, the rebels are jihadists. The rebels are Islamists. The rebels are exactly the kind of people we should be fighting, but we're supporting in Syria. The rebels have announced that they are going to be leaving Aleppo, which is a major victory, not for the United States, unfortunately. It's a major victory for Bashar al-Assad and his allies, the Russians and Iran. But it's not a major victory for the United States. In fact, it's a major loss, really, not for the American people, but for the politicians. That's the problem. The problem is the politicians. And the people who've been, and by the way, notice I'm not saying the Democrat politicians, because it's not just the Democrat politicians. That'd be nice. It'd be nice. I like it when I can just blame the Democrats. And often I can. But you can't just blame the Democrats when even Republicans, like John McCain and Lindsey Graham, or as I dubbed them yesterday, the ambiguously Republican duo, when John McCain and Lindsey Graham are out there on the front lines, John McCain in particular has really been supportive of the quote-unquote rebels, again, air quotes. He's been really supportive of the rebels. Who are the bad guys? The rebels are Islamists. And over and over and over again, yesterday here on the show, it was a John McCain bash fest where we talked about John McCain's. I had David Raboy on, national security expert David Raboy, reminding you of how bad John McCain was in the run-up and about a young woman named Elizabeth Obagi, who turns out had made up her whole resume, including literally pretending to have an advisor for her theoretical master's degree. She didn't actually have one. And now, by the way, and so this all sort of comes full circle, because as I've been telling you for days, invariably, every time McCain turns up, he's taking the side of Saudi Arabia. We saw this when Huma Abedin was being questioned by people like Michelle Bachman, who you hear in the intro of my show, by the way. That's who that voice saying, they were privileged to meet me last week. That's Michelle Bachman. 
So when Michelle Bachman was properly asking questions about Huma Abedin, Hillary Clinton's top aide for the last 20 years, and saying, where does she, what's, what's the deal with Huma Abedin? She seems to have connections with people who funded terrorism, like the Muslim worldly. When she was asking questions, who came to Huma Abedin's defense but John McCain? Then, who's backing the rebels in Syria? Saudi Arabia. You don't hear the media talk about this. They don't talk about it. But Saudi Arabia are the people backing the Syrian rebels. And of course, there's John McCain. And then, distracting from all of this mess in Syria are allegations about Russian hacking with no new information. There's no, no, there, there. I don't know why I said no twice. Is there anything new in these allegations about alleged Russian hacking? Yet. I say yet. That's Russian. They give us Russian lessons. When you work for Breitbart as part of the KGB training, I'm joking. I shouldn't even say that joking because, number one, uh, people take things literally. And number two, people don't have a sense of humor. And number three, people are stupid. So I shouldn't even say that in jest. By the way, did you see... Evan McMullen attacking my friend Brandon Darby. Brandon was on the show with us last week. And last night, he's being attacked. This is whack, as the kids like to say. Is that what the kids say? I think it is. This is whack. Evan McMullen was literally accusing Brandon Darby of being a Russian agent last night. I say yes. This is, it's insane. On the Twitter, Brandon was, here's the thing. I was going to say attacking Evan McMullen, but Evan McMullen is like a fish in a barrel. This is a guy who admitted during the election that the only reason he was running was to try to keep Donald Trump from winning. By the way, how did that work out, McMullen? Didn't work out very well, did it? This is what's so sad about the losers, as I like to call them. I like to call them that not because I like insulting people for being losers, but because they, in fact, lost. It's a factual descriptor. When you call people who lost losers, you're not being mean. You're being accurate. So the losers are upset, and all the losers have to do right now is to bring up Russia, Russia, Russia. But I think there's an ulterior motive behind it, and I think it distracts from the country we should be talking about, which is Saudi Arabia. I'll be talking a little bit more about this later. We have a big show for you today. Coming up in about a half hour, author and jihadi expert Seb Gorka, the great Sebastian Gorka, and his marvelous, marvelous voice. I know I talk about whatever Seb's on, You've seen Seb on Fox News and other places. He's going to be the guest today. And we're going to be talking about how to fight jihad and what he makes of the Trump cabinet. Coming up later in the show, I want you to call, and you can, by the way. I want you to be part of the show. I want to hear your opinion on the Trump cabinet pick so far. 
Rick Perry was named as Energy Secretary today, as nominee for Energy Secretary. We have the big one that liberals are losing their brains over, which is Trump's pick for Secretary of State, the CEO of Exxon. I love that. I do love that. I do love that. I love that it's a non-politician who is CEO of the world's largest oil company. I'm going to circle back to Saudi Arabia here in a second, too. Rex Tillerson's a guy who's actually traveled around the world and negotiated. This is a guy who's had to negotiate. You know, they talk about how he's got a quote-unquote relationship with Putin. That means that Putin doesn't hate him, by the way. But... If he was going over to deal with Putin, that means he was negotiating with him. And so I like the idea of someone to negotiate with people. And, by the way, he disagreed publicly with the Saudi oil minister recently as last year about where the oil industry was heading. And I like that. I like it's somebody who can disagree with Saudi Arabia. We need a little bit more of that. But I want to hear your opinion on this. I want to hear what you have to think. And you'll be able to call in throughout the show if you have a rating. Here's, here's what I'd like you to do. I'm going to establish a format here. Here's what I'd like you to do. If you have an opinion, the number to call in, by the way, is 619-924-0786. That number, we're live right now, 619-924-0786. If you have an opinion, let's do it with letter grade, shall we? I didn't go to school very much. But I hear they give letter grades, A through, uh, A through F. A, I believe, is the highest. Although when I was in school, I considered F to be fantastic. So I'm just going to go with, uh, don't go with that. Let's go with F is bad and A is good. Let's go there. C is sort of middling. Here's the format. Ready? It's going to be real simple. I want you to call in 619-924-0786 anytime in the show. Feel free throughout the show. And tell me, I want you to pick who gets an A and who gets an F. Who do you like? You don't have to name them all. There's a lot of cabinet picks. You don't have to name them all. If you don't have an F, if you don't have an A, that's fine. But if you can pick someone you like and someone you don't like, that would be great. A little bit of balance. But I want to hear your opinion on this because we get a lot of cabinet picks so far. Jeff Sessions. Attorney General. I'm not going to name everybody. Steve Bannon, he's not a cabinet pick, but I'll, here, let's expand the category, shall we? I'll let you pick not only cabinet pick, but if you want to rate Steve, I'll rate Steve Bannon. A plus. There you go. That was easy enough. A plus. How about the choice for Labor Secretary? That's been a little controversial. Andy Puzder, he's the CEO of Carl Jr. Hardee's. Really, it's called KCE Enterprises or something like that, KEC Holdings or Restaurants or something like that. But it's Hardee's and it's Carl Jr., that's who it is. The KCE part, that's just the name of the company. But Andrew Puzder is the... CEO of 
There's another CEO, which again I like. <laughs> I like these CEOs he's putting in place. I got to I got to say, I like the CEOs he's putting in place. Some controversy. And again, I've complained about this before. There's some people who are so they can't be happy. See, I'm. I'll, let me tell you my rating. I want to hear your what you have to say. But I'm gonna. I, I don't. Here's a spoiler. I'm pretty happy with everybody. So, Puzzler, even my own publication, Breitbart News, where I'm the lead investigative reporter, and do my work as America's finest journalist. Even Breitbart went on the warpath against Puzzler, as they did against other possibilities. When when Mitt Romney, it was said he was going to be meeting with Trump. I was fine with Mitt Romney meeting with Trump. Let me tell you something. Let me give you some keen insight into the mind of Stephen K. Bannon. By the way, I'm not telling you anything you don't know here. If you know anything about Stephen K. Bannon, if you've read any profile of him, Steve is Machiavellian, shall we say. Steve understands how to put people in positions is another way of saying that. Steve's okay with conflict. He didn't just hire people who all get along at Breitbart. He doesn't hire people who all agree with one another at Breitbart. Steve's the guy who hired me. That's a long story. I'm the only person, I think, who was hired personally by both Steve Bannon and Andrew Breitbart. Andrew personally hired me to work on the Pickford story. We worked on that. Then after Andrew passed away, I was working at Breitbart. I quit to go to the Middle East. I came back. I was fired by my friend, the aforementioned Brandon Darby, who I'm friends with. So whatever, that's water under the bridge. I was fired by Brandon, and then I was rehired personally by Steve Bannon. So Steve's a guy who knows how to put people in positions. He's a guy who knows how to put people in place. So I'll tell you, with Bannon in there, I'm not really worried about any of these things, but that's me. And again, I'd like to hear your opinion all throughout the show. Please give us a call and rate the cabinet. What have I done? Hang on one second. I just hit a button. I thought, let me try that again. Call in and see, I was setting up something there. I was trying to say rate the cabinet, and then there would be a dramatic slight pause and then the bumper would play. Let's try it again, shall we? 15 minutes past the hour. By the way, so let's try it again. Ready? Here we go. So you can call in anytime and rate the cabinet. Oh, my gosh, I did it again. Hang on. What's going on? Why isn't that working? I'm hitting a button that should, by all logic. Here we go. Rate You're listening to Radio Stranahan. Call us. That'll show me to try to make a dramatic pause. Really, that's the lesson there. 619-924-0786 is the number. Call in. Coming up later this hour, we have Seb Gorka talking about how to fight jihad. While you're waiting to call him, I want to talk about something I've been thinking about. You know, boy, the other thing Breitbart's got going, and I have a big story coming out about this in the next day or so, more on Kellogg's and the Kellogg's Foundation. You know right now Breitbart is, has a petition up wanting you to dump Kellogg's, which I think means not buy them. 
I don't think it means go buy Kellogg's products and then dump them because that would really defeat the purpose, right? It would cause Kellogg sales to spike. That's not the kind of thing you want to happen. So I think when they say dump Kellogg's, I mean, don't buy them. But I got to thinking about this a little bit. I'll tell you what makes me think about it is music. Because I love music. Now, I know that's a controversial position. I know I'm alone on that. Many people hate music. Um, but I, I like music. It's the stupidest thing in the world to say. When you say you like music, every, you know who likes music? Like everybody. There's like four people who don't like music. But I like music, and uh, I, I, I like the modern music. I like the rock and roll. Uh, I like the hippity hop. I like all that. And so, uh, so what I've noticed, though, and I often, if you follow me on Twitter, you'll see I often post music. Now, some people just want to be a downer. I think that's part of it. It's human nature. But I've noticed when I, when I tweet out certain groups, Springsteen, for instance, I'm a huge Bruce Springsteen fan. I've talked to Evan Sayad about this before. He's another conservative writer, speaker, and Springsteen fan. And uh, whenever I tweet out a Springsteen song, invariably someone jumps in and goes, oh, I can't listen to him as politics. Even Evan thinks that, by the way. And so how does this relate to the boycott? You see, here's what it is. Here's what I was thinking about. And again, there's another topic you can call in, 619-924-0786. By the way, if you, if you notice, I'm going to keep urging you to call in because I want to get more callers. I know. We're a middle of the day. I know. Hold on. I know. We're a middle of the day podcast type show. Therefore, getting people to call in is a little trickier than it would be if we were on terrestrial radio. Okay, who knows? We might be at some point, hint, hint. But right now, we're here, and so I want people to call in because I want to be able to interact with you, the listener. And the way we can interact that's legal and not dirty is if you call in, could be dirty. I don't know. It depends on your mouth. You've got a potty mouth. Who knows? is if you call in 619-924-0786. It'd be easier, by the way, on Blog Talk Radio. The Blog Talk Radio, if you want to get callers, do a show like on a Friday night when people have had, they tipped back a couple, they've had a few, they're slightly inebriated, intoxicated, drunk, whatever you want to call them. Oh, we have a caller. Hang on, I'll take the caller in a second. But I know there's a lot of teas, and I ask you to call, and then someone calls, and I don't jump on it right away. But anyway, just to finish this point, and then I'll, then I'll take the caller. The point is, we live in a liberal culture, period. We live in an overwhelmingly liberal culture, overwhelmingly liberal culture. It might as well be another planet if you're a conservative. TV, radio, news media, colleges, everything. And I think if you're going to live in that culture, it's impossible to stay pure on that stuff. And therefore, if I like a Springsteen song about cars and freedom, I don't feel bad about it. I'm not going to feel remotely bad about it. If I like a Rage Against the Machine song because Tom Morello is a great guitarist, I'm going to do that. But let's go to the caller. 
Hey, you're on the air. What's on your mind? Hey, um, hi. <laughs> this is Joy from hi. Portland. I don't know. I'm hey, kind of nervous calling you. Um, I now, was kind of wondering. I'd like to get. Now, by the way, why are you, why are you nervous? If I were nerv- if if I were you, I'd be nervous just being in Portland. But that's <laughs> that's my experience. I know it. But um, yeah, there's a lot of um, there, this has been a very trying time being um, voting for Trump when you live in Portland and you've raised kids to be Democrats and stuff, and your whole family is kind of like freaked out about the fact that you've changed your mind about everything. So it's been it's been. It's just working out okay, though. Everything's getting a lot better. So anyway, um, well, I was I I well, uh, John. Let me just say, I was up in Portland right after the election, when the riots uh-huh. were happening, when those protests were happening, and I've covered a right. lot of protests. And usually, I'll I'll interview people and I'll talk to them, and they ask where I'm from, and I'll say Breitbart News. I didn't dare do that when I was covering those protests. I could just I tell. Hear you. If I'd said I was in Bright Park, especially since Bannon was being attacked, it would have been nuts. So, yeah. Well, I was even. And I went on a. Um, I went on a dating site for the first time, and I, you know, a senior. But I put the acid shows that you like to listen to. I said Breitbart, and I had just been turned on to Breitbart. I had. I was. This was all new to me. I just became, you know, voted for a Republican for the first time in my life. So uh, I didn't get no. You wouldn't believe what's going on in Portland. Also, there is a you know those meetup group groups that you can go to on the web meetup. Yes. Uh huh. Okay. There was one an art geek group, art geeks of Portland, and it's huge. Like there are three hundred mem three thousand members or so, more than three thousand. So I signed up for a few of them, and lo and behold, I got a, um, right after the election, I got a letter, an email um, from uh, one of the movers and shakers of Art Geeks, actually the, the uh, founder of Art Geeks, and she um, said that if you, if anybody that voted for Trump is not welcome in this, in these meetups. That's unbelievable. Yeah, well, I, I would say it. I would say it's unbelievable, but it's completely believable. And, you know, this is what Kellogg's did with their serial advertising thing. They didn't just want to say – it's interesting how it's not enough for them just to be opposed to Trump themselves. They literally can't talk to anybody who might be in favor of Trump. It's really weird. It's really weird. But anyway, yeah. what are you calling about today? <clears throat> I got you off topic. Well, That's my fault. Well, no, that's fine. I was just kind of wondering um, how I'd like to hear you get your input on the reaction of Obama these days, like starting all these inquiries and everything. I mean, it's like, why is he doing this? It's just making him look bad. Well, okay, so that's an interesting question. I think, and this is not particularly conjecture, this is very clear. Obama's big concern right now is his legacy. And this is common for presidents when they're leaving office. By the way, I'm not a fan of his, but the one guy who didn't seem that concerned about his legacy was George W. Bush. He was asked about it, and he just, he just didn't care that much about his legacy. But most presidents, for huh. reasons that are pretty understandable, uh, well, look, if you look at what Bush has done, he's kind of 
retired and he's painting. That's what he's doing. It's interesting. Right. Um, uh, he he's not actively involved, but a guy like Clinton, for instance, and this is no. I'm not even saying this is a reflection on their policies. Clinton, even though he was disgraced by the end because of the Lewinsky affair, you know, people were kind of sick of all that. Clinton yeah. stayed in the game, right? He stayed in the game. And uh, and Bush hasn't shown up at, I don't think he's shown up at any of the conventions. Uh, he wasn't there in 2012. He's not a player. Bush has not inserted himself. But Obama is really thinking about his legacy. Really thinking yeah, about Yeah, he comes legacy. right out and says, this is about, I'm, he comes right out and say it. You know, he says it every chance he gets. Well, well, one of the most interesting comments that Obama made was when people were talking about Obamacare, Obamacare, this was back before the Affordable Care Act was passed. He came out at one press conference. He said, he said, you know, I'm a, he said, I, at first I was a little insulted. People were talking about Obamacare, but now I think I like the term. And so mm-hmm. in other words, he liked it because it had his name in it, right? That's why he decided, you know, okay, I can live with it because he, I, I guess, thought it would be good for people and thought people would like it. But I think everything Obama's doing right now is about his legacy. And it, as about, it's also about throwing, you know, they have these things that the police throw out when there's a car chase, these road spikes, right? They, 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 I lived in Los Angeles for a long time. You'd see these. They throw these road spikes out. So when, the, when they're doing a police pursuit, it's, these, it's a spike strip that the car runs over to slow it down. And that's what I think Obama's doing. I think a lot of this stuff is he's trying to throw out spike strips for the Trump administration. No, no. What do you think, though? What do you think's mm-hmm. up with it? I don't know. I just it just seems like he's desperate, and I I really don't know. You know, that's it. Uh, it seems to me that he's making it worse for his legacy by what he's doing. But I not seeing through eyes that worship him, which a lot of people do worship him. So I don't know. Well, they, you know, I mean, here's the problem he's got. And it's a unique problem for a president. He literally has somebody who's not just talking about it, but in Donald Trump, he is somebody who very clearly is going to do what he said. Um, They talk about like the seven stages of death or whatever that people go through. There's uh-huh. anger and denial and all those, right? <laughs> no kidding. And so, <clears throat> it is like you, he's doing you can, something like you, that, exactly. It, it really is, and the Democrats are like it, too. At first, uh, there was anger and then denial and then eventually bargaining, right? So denial, the night of the election, you could see Democrats, even people like Van Jones, were kind of going like, well, he's not going to. Now he can back off the positions he took in the election. Now, you know that wall thing, he can come out and tell everybody he was just fooling about that. And then when it became clear, this is why I think they went nuts when Steve Bannon was put in. Uh Steve Bannon being put in as chief of strategy is a shot across the bow. And it tells everybody that Trump is serious. It's Trump saying, no, I mean it. I mean it. Because Steve means it. Steve is not a politician. And, uh, I think that's why they're so petrified and why they immediately tried to do everything. They threw everything they could at Bannon 
uh, he's an anti-Semi, he's a racist, he's a white supremacist, all of that. And everything I think that they're doing now is literally they're trying to throw up spike scripts. But I think the other thing that's going on is it's not just that Trump will undo Obama's legacy, but let's look at for instance, Jeff Sessions is going to be the attorney general. When Jeff Sessions gets in as attorney general, he's going to have access to files, to documents, to cases. Does that make sense? That have happened for the yeah, past man. years. They're scared. And, so, and that I think they're petrified. And, and it's the same with the Department of Defense, for instance. It's going to be the same with the CIA. Can you imagine their reaction mm-hmm. when a Trump appointee is heading the CIA, not an Obama no appointee? No So I think – God. Yeah, I, I think they're very, very, very nervous about what's coming, and they don't want to just slow it down because uh, of what Obama is trying to preserve, but what Trump is going to reveal. And I think that's absolutely frightening to them. But anyway, Joy, thank you. It makes me want to have a you. makes me want to have a party. Thank you so much. <laughs> I'm so glad. No, you bet. I'm so relieved. Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> oh, yeah, me, me too, Joy. Thanks very much for calling in. Appreciate appreciate the call. There you go. See, that wasn't hard. She was petrified. She was scared. She said she was nervous, and then it turns out that I'm I'm okay. See, it's not. I try to. It's an easy experience. Six one nine nine two four zero seven eight six. It is 30 minutes past the hour. Bringing the truth to all 50 states. Yeah, even Massachusetts. Radio Stranahan. This is Lee Stranahan. You're listening to Radio Stranahan. Coming up this hour, Seb Gorka talking about fighting jihad. Seb's an author and expert. You've seen him on Fox News. You've heard him. I interviewed him on my Making the News podcast. Hey, today's episode of... Radio Stranahan is brought to you by, once again, me, my citizen journalism school. If you want to learn to be America's finest journalist like me, it's going to be hard to compete because I I still exist. But if you want to learn how to do the kind of journalism I do, fact-based, fearless journalism, I have a unique opportunity we're going to be announcing in the next year or two. It's called the Citizen Journalism School Mentorship Program. And this is literally a chance We're going to have a full class later, a course you can take online. And we also have a free course you can take. You can sign up for it right now called Build Your Media Empire. It's a free course. Go to citizenjournalismschool.com. And when you sign up for that, you'll be on my mailing list, citizenjournalismschool.com. Sign up for the free course. You'll get the free course, and you'll get information about this mentorship program. What's the mentorship program? It's a way for you to work directly with me me answering your questions. We'll talk in both private and small group sessions to work on journalism problems you have, whether you're trying to build a career, whether you're trying to break a story, whether you're trying to meet people, whether you're trying to build a career, whatever you're trying to do. I can help you in that mentorship program. The mentorship program is exclusive. I'm going to be honest. It's not for everybody. If you consider yourself a casual person, it's not for you. If you're interested in a career in journalism, I will save you a ton of time, effort, heartbreak, and even money by having you not go down the wrong path. 
and the price is going to be much, much, much less than you'd pay if you went to a journalism school, or as I call it, a leftist indoctrination factory. If you went to Columbia Journalism School or the University of Missouri at Columbia, anything with the word Columbia in it, Columbia School of Broadcasting, I'm going to leave them out of it. I don't think they have anything to do with it. But if you go to any of these big journalism schools, you're going to spend tens of thousands of dollars. The mentorship program is going to be considerably less than that. You can find out more about it by going to citizenjournalismschool.com right now, citizenjournalismschool.com. Sign up for the free course, build your own media empire, and you'll get information about the mentorship program within the next couple of days. By all first mention on Lee Stranahan. Cuddly, he's my friend. Yeah, he got thrown out of the club for reporting stories that were being suppressed. Radio Stranahan. We have joining us on the line now, Sebastian Gorka, author of the book, Defeating Jihad. Seb, how you doing? Good. How's it going, Lee? Good, good. I, I said... See, they don't. I just, I just when when I'm I'm operating the board here, I can just see the phone number, and I don't have your number memorized, Seb, which you'll be very glad to know because it would make me sound creepy. <laughs> but but I'm looking at it. I'm like that looks like Sebastian's number, so I'm going to click on it. Assume it's him. Uh, thanks very much for joining us today uh, on Radio Stranahan. I wanted to have you on because first off, you know I like you a lot, and uh, and uh, you're very popular with the people out there, whenever I mention you, I don't know if you know this, whenever I mention you, invariably, if I mention you on Twitter, people are always like, I love that guy. I love Sebastian. So. <laughs> now, don't get creepy, Lee. It's don't true. Get creepy. It's true. No, I didn't say I like you. <laughs> Maybe I did, actually. Maybe I did. But I do like you. But I don't have your phone number memorized. But, uh, but anyway, I wanted to talk to you because there's a couple things going on. We're in the middle of these cabinet picks, and I want to get your take on that. But also, I want to talk to you about what's going on in Syria right now. Uh, we, you and I have not talked about this. Let me lay out my theory, and you're smarter than I am. And so feel free to poke holes in my little theory, okay? Go ahead. So what, here's what I see happening. There's all this talk lately about the Russian hacking, and it's all come, coming from a few sources, right? When I see this, it's coming from Hillary Clinton. She did a speech about it. It's coming from unnamed people at the CIA. And it's coming from people like John McCain on the Republican side calling for hearings. Now, and it's supposedly about Donald Trump and his connection with Russia and the Russian hacking and everything else. So here's what I think is going on. I think this is misdirection from what's happening right now in Syria, particularly in Aleppo. Because, my, again, this is my theory, but feel, feel free to disagree here. The, the Russians have been opposing what we call, the media likes to call the rebels, but they're really jihadist elements. This army of conquest in Syria, which is al-Nusra, they're all Salafi, uh, Sunni, Salafi, Wahhabist, Islamist fighters, backed by Saudi Arabia, Right? And that's, that's who we're fighting. And that's not we're fighting. That's who we're supporting. They were trained by the CIA in many cases. The Free Syria Army and their allies were trained by the CIA. They were supported by John McCain. They were supported by Hillary Clinton. And 
they're opposed by Russia. And so I think this is a sort of misdirection for what's going on in Syria. Feel free. What, what say you? Uh, Listen, Lee, I'll be perfectly honest with you. Um, I, I uh, love conspiracy theories insofar as I have a whole bookcase at home of conspiracy theories, and I find them really entertaining. But the whole point with a conspiracy theory is that it is a theory. It's not a fact. So um, your uh, supposition is a supposition. It doesn't mean it's not possible, but I have yet to see the fact that links those two events together and proves that this is an effect uh, to, to divert our attention. Uh, let me just start with, with the facts of the case. What is happening right now is an incredibly dangerous um, politicization of the American intelligence community. Uh, I would like your listeners to have a look at a, a report that was exclusive to Reuters today, uh, co-authored by Mark Hosenborn. And in it, they state unequivocally, speaking to three different intelligence sources, and the spokesperson for the ODNI, that's the Office of the Director of National Intelligence. That's the highest intelligence body above all others in the United States. And the spokesperson and the other sources state that whilst the CIA has proven that there was some kind of hacking coming from Russia, there is no proof, they are unequivocal on this, no proof that there is any intent in that hacking to favor one or other of the presidential candidates. That statement from the highest level of U.S. intelligence by itself shows you the Democrat Party hasn't dealt with, hasn't internalized the failure of their candidate one month ago and is now using an intelligence body to undermine the American faith in the electoral system. And Lee, that is incredibly dangerous. When you start to attack the credibility of our electoral system without evidence, that can lead to some very, very negative consequences. So, you know, your theory is not out of the question, but I need to see the, the connective tissue. In the meantime, I'm just going to call this for what it is, a politicization of the American intelligence community. Now, do you, so on a factual basis, do you agree, though, with the assessment that the, the so-called rebels in Syria, there's a tremendous, uh, that the, a jihadi element is a big part of that rebel element. I don't know how to quantify it, but yeah, if you look at the amazing work by um, our friends at the Long War Journal, so people like Tom Jocelyn and Bill Roccio, I mean, this is indisputable. You know, the, 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 when the so-called moderates um, had, a, had a, a certain capability five years ago when the Civil War began, now the majority of the fighters are just jihadists. And the idea that, you know, there's, there's a moderate Muslim uh, revolution going on is just utterly fallacious. There's ISIS, there's al-Nusra, there's rump elements of al-Qaeda originally, there's numerous other jihadi fighters. Uh, yeah, this is, the idea that there's some major moderate wing is simply not, not true. And 
And how do you feel as a person, uh, like I say, this is your area, but how do you feel about the U.S. having backed since the outbreak of the Syrian civil war, which I would argue we caused, the United States caused, by supporting the Arab Spring the way that we did. We supported the Arab Spring uprisings and the Syrian civil war that we have now grew out of that. Um, how do you feel about the U.S. Uh, being on the side it's been on in that in, in Syria? Uh, look, the, the world is on fire. Look at the last eight years, wherever you look, whether it's Russia invading Ukraine, China building false islands uh, in the South China Sea to put military installations on, or the collapse of Syria, uh, the, the, the disasters in Mali. The world is on fire because of the Obama administration and Hillary Clinton's foreign policy. You're absolutely right. I mean, the, look at Syria. Let's just have a reality check on Syria. For the last five years, it has been an article of faith, literally an article of faith for the Obama administration, that all their policies towards Syria are built upon one foundation, that President Assad must go. That is the article of faith. Now, you know, any 10-year-old who looks at the geopolitical situation can say there's a problem here with, with, with that being the foundation of U.S. policy to Syria. Because as long as Assad enjoys the support of a nuclear China and a nuclear Russia, he's not going anywhere. I mean, unless Obama wants to go to war with Russia and China at the same time to get rid of Assad, this is absolute absurdity. So we have a foreign policy elite that is naive beyond comprehension and simply lives in its bulletproof little bubble that, that is like Alice in Wonderland. So, yes, our, our policies have been catastrophic for the region and on the longer term for U.S. national security. And how do you think the media has done in covering this? Because this is, this is so amazing <laughs> to me. So, yeah, that, I think that laugh should be the answer right there. But, 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 but no, how do you think the media has done in covering they, they made a big deal about the so-called secret war during Vietnam, so what was going on in Laos and Cambodia, I mean, that's still a big deal today. The fact is that pales by comparison to what the Obama administration has got away with. On, on Labor Day recently, uh, you know, if, if you actually pay attention, uh, on Labor Day, America bombed five different nations in the Middle East and North Africa. And, and it's, it's the war that the media simply isn't reporting on. If it's not Breitbart, then, then nobody's covering it. If it's not Long War Journal, it's just not going to be in the New York Times, Newsweek, CNN. The idea that a, a left-wing administration, which should be the peacenik, right, should be the, you know, the dovish administration, is more aggressive in terms of who it's bombing and who it's droning, but the media doesn't cover it. That's the giant untold story of the last eight years, Lee. Yeah, no, it, it's – and for anybody who actually knows what's going on, you know, whenever I see them talk about the rebels, which is what they talk – all the American coverage, I won't say Western, but a lot of it's Western too, they just talk about the rebels. They just say, well, the, you know, the rebels are being pushed out of eastern Aleppo, for instance. But they never explain who the rebels are at all or explain the fact that for instance they've been they they were charging 
money to let, like they talk about the civilians who they say are trapped there. When I interviewed people from Aleppo three years ago, they were telling me what was going on, which is these jihadists will come in and kidnap people. And they're not doing kidnappings for huge amounts of money. They would do kidnappings for a small amount of money, a few thousand dollars. But it's a way they raise money. So they just grab anybody. They would just literally grab anybody and kidnap them, get a few grand. And that's a quick way to make money to fund the jihad that they're, they're fighting. So when they talk about the civilians that are there, I feel like I'm in bizarro world knowing what I know when I, when I see the media coverage on this. Right. And, and again, so, so think about the reality check that needs to be done again with who's doing the fighting and what's going to happen next. So, so let, let's say you, know, you, you take the blue pill and, and you stay in fantasy land. And you say, okay, we're going to get rid of Assad. Imagine if that's even possible. You know, we get rid of him. Okay, we got rid of him. Then what? What, what happens after? If, if, I'm not making excuses for the Assad regime. This is not a nice man. This is a bad actor. But if you talk to the civilians, if you talk, my wife is very, very well connected to the Christian communities in Syria. If you talk to the bishops, if you talk to the representatives of the Christians that are trying to survive in that community, they say, look, um, we know one thing for sure. We are in a civil war, but we have one thing that we can assert with absolute 100% certitude. If Assad goes, we're all dead. There are no Christians left. Because whoever comes next will eradicate any surviving Christian. So th- this is the reality check that simply doesn't penetrate the, the miasmic clouds of decision-making that today calls itself the National Security Council or, or, the, uh, or the White House. We're talking to Seb Gorka right now, and it's about 46 minutes past the hour. Oops, hang on one second. that. You're listening to Radio Stranahan. Call us. Number to call in if you want to, 619-924-0786. So, yeah, no, Seb, when I was in Lebanon, I talked to archbishops and I talked to Louis Sacco, who's the patriarch of Babylon, the head of the Iraqi Catholic Church, and that's exactly what they were saying. In fact, uh, Sacco, uh, uh, Patriarch Sacco, told me this is before Iraq fell again, basically. Uh, he just said, we have democracy now. We have, we have democracy, but we have no security. And he said, uh, uh, privately, he said, as bad, you know, as bad as Hussein was, it, even with Saddam Hussein, it was better for Christians when Saddam Hussein was in place. In Iraq, Christians were forced to flee, and he just saw what was happening in Syria, and it's exactly what you just said, which is the Christian community is being devastated. And as I found out when I went over there, Christians are being killed by the forces that are being supported by the U.S. Um, and as we know from John McCain, trained in many cases by the CIA. The CIA is, are, are the people who are over there uh, training. And again, I don't, I don't blame the individual people in the CIA. They're following a, a policy, you know, they're following a policy of Obama's. But still, that's that's one of the reasons I believe you're never going to get 
them to come out and say. But that's the thing I see. While this is happening in Aleppo, it's very, very interesting to me that Russia is being demonized again without even any new information. That's why it's a slight conspiracy theory, but let me, let me call it a sort of a, a fact-based conspiracy theory because I, I can't connect it, but I know that both elements of it are true, if that makes sense. Let me ask you about the cabinet picks that Trump has made so far. So you're talking about the disaster that we've had for the past eight years. How do you feel about the people he's, he's put into place? Let's, let's talk about, for instance, his new choice for Secretary of State, CEO of Exxon. How, how do you feel about that? Well, look, look, let's start with the, the whole field. Uh, I, you know, I, I, my, my bumper sticker for the selections to date are, you know, the pajama boys need to stand aside because the alpha males are back. So, you know, this, this, is, this is a – no, seriously. I mean, look at the, look at the team. Um, the leadership is going to return. This isn't a presidential transition. This is, this is the return of leadership to the United States whether it's General Mattis, General Kelly, whether it's uh, General Mike Flynn, whether it's the new pick for Secretary of State, uh, AG Sessions, uh, Mike Pompeo. These are incredibly, incredibly impressive individuals. And, and let's just look at the, the Department of State uh, selection. Um, look at this man's track record. Forget the conspiracy theories, it's big oil and everything else. This is a man who went from high school to work for this company. He didn't go to college. And from the age of 18, he worked his way up to be the head of one of the most important companies in the world today, a man who knows in his bones how to do diplomacy, who is completely at ease dealing with heads of state. This is a man who understands the importance of energy, how America can be made an energy exporter and independent again. Uh, as a result, I am not disturbed in the slightest by this pick. And in fact, I'm very, very happy to date with all the picks. Yeah, no, I, I feel the same way. Now, who's, are there any picks at all, your, your, anybody, even not on the national security front, who you're worried about? Any cabinet picks that you're questioning? Well, you know, I, I, I'm not going to get into second-guessing what's happening on, on floor 26 of Trump Tower, but, but now that, uh, you know, Mitt Romney's out of the running for the State Department, I think that would have been problematic. However, I could see somebody like a Mitt Romney helping to sort out the Veterans Administration, you know, a man who could get that catastrophic organization to actually help our veterans. But I'm not sure he would ex accept it. But, but at the moment, I'm going to trust uh, in Donald Trump because Donald Trump has demonstrated one thing. He has, he has very good instincts. This is an instinctual actor, not just a very successful businessman, but a man who has very strong instincts. Yeah, I was, I was kind of hoping you'd name somebody because I don't want to seem like I'm all sycophantic on the show, but I'm on your side on this one. I completely agree. When I see people freaking out, us, particularly on, on social media, and particularly people who were Trump supporters, uh, who are freaking out about every decision, or so, some of them certainly. They like Mad Dog, for instance. Mad Dog seems to be a, a very popular choice. Uh, but when I see them freaking out about some of these decisions – I'm like, will you let Trump do his job? Like, let him just give him a little, you know, I'll, I have no problem being critical if some of these people get in and do things I think is deserving of criticism. 
But just on them being nominated, I had no problem with them talking to Romney. I wouldn't have been thrilled with Romney as Secretary of State. But on the other hand, the work Romney did uh, on the Olympics means he's dealt with international leaders. And I don't think he's a great wartime Secretary of State, but I think he, I think Trump has enough, like you say, uh, testosterone in there to, to I don't know, I, I, you didn't pray, my phrase, not yours, but I think he's got enough testosterone in there where I'm not worried about uh, we have wimps in these other places. And so a guy like Romney could have balanced it. But I'm, I'm happy with the Exxon chief, too. In particular, like I say, because he's been able to. Well, how do you let me ask you this? How do you feel about his relationship with Putin? Is that anything that worries you? Look, I, I, again, I, I think there's so much misinformation here. This whole idea that, you know, uh, the Republican candidate uh, had disturbing ties to Moscow. I mean, if anybody had disturbing ties to Moscow who was literally in the pocket of the Kremlin, it wasn't Donald Trump. It was Hillary Clinton. Remember, just look at Peter Schweitzer's Clinton cash. Look at the U.S. uranium that was sold to Russian Kremlin front companies when she was Secretary of State and had to sign off on that deal. So, you know, if there's any uh, sympathy between Mr. Trump and Mr. Putin, I think it's not more than both recognizing each other that they are also alpha males. So it's that, that mutual simpatico from, from being leaders. I think they... I think Donald Trump, having met regularly with Mike Flynn, his national security advisor, they understand who Vladimir Putin is, but they also understand he's a strong leader. Yeah, ab- absolutely. Now, now let's just talk, to, just finally here, let's talk about how you view these cabinet picks in terms of fighting the war on Islamism, in terms of fighting jihad which is, of course, Defeating Jihad is the name of a book you may have written at one point. <laughs> but let's talk, about, let's talk about that, because this is really your area. How, how do you contrast what we can expect coming with what we've seen happen in the past right. so th- th- eight years? Here? This is, so the first piece of uh, advice in my book, Defeating Jihad, is something that I think we're going to see occur um, on day one, January 20th in the evening. And that is the complete jettisoning of uh, any political correctness. In the last eight years, we've seen political correctness infect the intelligence cycle. You weren't allowed to call the enemy by the names it called itself. That is going to end. So um, that calling a spade a spade will be the new American reality. On top of that, I think you'll see American leadership back in the world. That will change our chances of defeating this enemy. And then lastly, the most important thing of all on the long term is that these individuals, and this includes the president-elect, understand that it's not about killing bad guys. Killing bad guys only gets you so far. The long-term victory in this war is when you destroy the ideology of global jihadism. General Mike Flynn, uh, Donald Trump, if you read his um, speeches from Philadelphia, uh, uh, then you understand he 
gets this. This is a counter-ideological war, and as a result, the difference between the Obama administration and the Trump administration will be huge. Now, when some of that ideology is coming from our supposed allies, the Saudi Arabians, which is really the genesis of a lot of the, the Wahhabist ideology has been spread by Saudi Arabia, what do you think, it's easy to criticize them, and I'm very critical of Saudi Arabia, but what, how do you think we should actually be dealing with them? Because I'm, I'm one of those people, like, I, I'm very critical of Saudi Arabia, but on the other hand, I don't think we should declare war on them. But I'm, I'm very curious to hear your take on yeah, it's totally unnecessary. I mean, I have a whole chapter on this issue in my book, uh, Defeating Jihad. Saudi Arabia has, for plus years, been on the wrong side of this issue. They're st- starting to reassess their attitude to the, the ideology of jihad, but they've been more of a, a problem than part of the solution. But I think that can be dealt with. That could have been dealt with. The sad thing, it could have been dealt with the day after 9-11, behind closed doors by the Bush administration. Saudi Arabia depends upon us as a regime for its survival. What we need to do now is play hardball behind closed doors and tell them a very simple message. You know, if you want us to treat you as an ally, as a partner, then there are certain, certain things we demand, and they are non-negotiable. And the funding of the propagation of this ideology called jihadism stops January 21st, and if there's anybody that can broker that deal, it is Donald J. Trump. And you think that just standing up to him a little bit there, you think that that's going to have an effect on them? Oh, absolutely, because they're petrified. The regime is petrified of its capacity to survive a, a growing threat of the caliphate. The fact is, the people that this regime supported in the 1980s have now turned against them, and they now see them as, as, as much infidels as the Christians, the Yazidis, or the Jews. So the Saudi regime uh, is desperate and afraid as well, and as a result, we will have uh, a great deal of leverage over them. Great, great point. Seb, thanks very much for taking the time. Always love talking to you. And uh, I think it's important that people understand what's going on right now. Thank you, and please uh, have your listeners check out my website, thegorkabriefing.com. That's T-H-E-G-O-R-K-A briefing.com for lots, lots more. And you can get his book, Defeating Jihad, wherever you get books. I assume it's on Amazon. I know for a fact it's on Amazon and every place else. So it's a great book. Check it out. Seth, thanks again for being on the show. Appreciate it. Anytime. All right, top of the hour right now. You're listening to Radio Stranahan. Shining the light of truth on liberal America. Hey, that's a bright light. Radio Stranahan. This is Lee Stranahan, Radio Stranahan. And once again, we're brought to you by Citizen Journalism School, citizenjournalismschool.com. That's my site where we teach you how to research, write, get the story, make a difference, and make a living doing it. I have a new course coming up. It's the Citizen Journalism School Mentorship Program, your chance to work one-on-one with me and in small groups, get your questions answered, learn every aspect of journalism, whether you're interested in research, how to write, how to do video, how to get a story out there, how to get traction on a story, how to meet people. You'll have access to my Rolodex. I will work with you personally. That's the whole idea behind the mentorship program. 
and it costs a fraction of what you would spend on journalism school, and it makes the ideal Christmas gift. I should point that out. If you know somebody who's interested in a career in journalism in particular, this is a life-changing course. Check it out. Go sign up for the free class, Build Your Media Empire, Citizen Journalism School, citizenjournalismschool.com. You're listening to Radio Stranahan. Call us. 619-924-0786. The number to call into Radio Stranahan, 619-924-0786. Love talking to Seb. Have a caller. Hi, you're on the air. Hey there, Lee. How are you? Well, I'm just concerned because I think like six. My name's Judy. How are you doing? Good. I wanted to, I wanted to address I loved I love just listening to Seb Gorka my favorite um, I just wanted to address all the cops that have been killed this past couple of weeks like six or seven and I haven't heard Trump say anything about it and I also haven't heard him mentioning law and order anymore sticking on the immigration and all the other promises but I'm a little bit concerned and I'm wondering if I should be well I'll tell you I don't think you should be concerned obviously the the deaths of the police officers is uh, horrible. I and I, I'm one of those people who likes to when I don't know things to say I don't know things. I have not looked into the circumstances of all these police shootings, but from a cursory bit of research I've done on a few of them, they don't seem to be political in nature. Does that make sense? In other words, the concern for a while was like the assassination of police that we saw in Dallas and Baton Rouge and New York and other places, yeah, Texas, right? That yeah. was a real concern for me. The recent death of police officers, I haven't found so far one of them, and maybe I, it's, it's, again, it's entirely possible I've missed one because I haven't researched them all. But I didn't see any of them were political in nature. Unfortunately, they were just, it seems to me, like police doing their job. And um, I think if you haven't heard about law and order from Trump, it's only because he's been busy. It's, in other words, going through and picking the cabinet and everything else. If there's one area that I've said this consistently through the primaries, that I have no worries at all about Trump about. It's his support for the police. And, and by the way, I think it's support for the military as well. This is a guy okay, who, whatever you, whatever you say about him, he's clearly been on the side of the police consistently. But what's your, what's your I, feel, I feel like that. But, you know, when you hear him talking about Obama so nice and, you know, they're talking a lot, I don't know about, you know – Obama wants to open up the jails and let people out. He wants to abolish the police, basically. And I just worry that I don't know how much of that is, you know, trying to be conveyed to him. And I haven't heard him mention law and order lately, so I'm just getting nervous. But, I mean, I I don't know. It's just something I worry about. It's the most important thing to me. I'll tell you what I know. And, again, I'm I'm in this weird position because I know Stephen K. Bannon, right? So I know Trump's chief strategist, the guy who Trump is talking to every day on this issue. So if you ask me what Trump knows about that, I can't tell you. I've talked to Trump 
had one exchange with him briefly asked a question. He answered it a few months ago. I've never sat down with Donald J. Trump. Don't know him, right? Can't read his mind. On the other hand, I know Steve Bannon. And so if you ask me if Trump is aware of it, I, I don't know that. But if you ask me if Steve Bannon's aware of that, 100% Steve's aware of it. Steve was instrumental in pursuing the narrative. And he used to cover this. And they, and they sent me out to cover uh, Black Lives Matter in particular, to cover police shootings, to cover protests. And that was Steve behind that. And I was a frequent guest on the Breitbart News show when Steve was hosting. And we would talk about this all the time. So Steve Bannon. Oh, I totally, I know. I, I'm like, I know. I have like a master's degree in Black Lives Matter. <laughs> Yeah. So I totally know. I feel good about Steve Bannon being there because I know he knows the Occupy. You know, it's another, you know, it's another arm of Occupy, and I know he knows that, and that makes me feel so good. But all right, well then no, I'll just chill that, about it. Well, that's that's why I don't like I say I'm in a weird position because I know Steve, so I know what he knows, and I understand. But if you listen to Steve and you, you follow Breitbart, you know what he knows too. I think what Trump's doing, but you brought up an interesting point, Judy, I think is worth pursuing, which is why is Trump saying nice things about Trump? I think Donald realized that his, the Donald realized that his position now as the president, he's got to move into a uh, slightly more presidential role and not be sniping, which is why I think he came out and said, I'm not going to go after Hillary Clinton. Now, if Jeff Sessions is the attorney general and Jeff Sessions finds wrongdoing on Hillary Clinton's part, what's your opinion? I'm curious, Judy, what's your opinion? Do you think Donald Trump is going to stop Jeff Sessions from doing that? Um, I, I mean, I don't think it's on his radar. He, he, I've heard him say before that, you know, he viciously goes after someone when he's trying to win, and when he wins, they're non they're non consequential to him. I don't think he would impede law and order being. You know, if Jeff Sessions found that she needed to be indicted or there, there was some there there, I don't think he would do anything to impede that. But I don't think it's on his radar that's, at all, what I feel like. Yeah. So that's what I think. And I, 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 Well, how do you feel? See, because I agree with what you said. I think it's a great assessment, and I agree with it 100%. I think that's what he should be doing. As president, I don't think he should be. He, like, I don't, I don't want a president who seems like they've got – a personal vendetta against right. the person that they defeated in the election. On the other hand, right. I don't want a president who's going to impede the investigation. So now how do you feel about the rest of the cabinet? Since you're online, how do you feel about the rest of the cabinet? I feel great. I trust Trump so much. I mean, his judgment isn't like uh, his instincts and seem to be, it doesn't matter what he says. You could think it's so bad in the beginning. It always he over and over and over and over again proves to be so instinctively right about everything. And you know, I am not a, a business person. I'm not a government, you know, uh, expert. I feel like I chose him, and hopefully, he's making the best decisions. I don't like Nikki Haley at all, but um, I don't think, you know, I mean, she doesn't trouble me that much. You know, Romney would have troubled me greatly, but um, Nikki Haley, that's a no for me. But other than that, no, I feel, I feel really good. Well, I'm not a, I'm not a Nikki Haley fan either, although I've got to say, I think 
and I'll, I'll tell you this is an, a, another thing I think that they're doing right. You know the phrase, keep your friends close and keep your enemies closer. I think there's advantages to sidelining Nikki Haley, essentially, and putting her in a position like she's going to be at the UN, where she's for the most part out of sight, out of mind. Um, <laughs> and so she, and, just, and it I'm takes, sorry to interrupt. It takes a, no, 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 not at all. No, I just think it takes a She's just a Black Lives Matter pander, I think. I feel like she panders to them, and I am, uh, they're such an enemy to America that just, that just, I can't justify her. But I see what you mean, and she's really not, I don't know, she's not, a tr- you know, she's not that troublesome to me, but that's the thing that bothers me about her. I feel like she legitimized the Black Lives Matter thing. Well, she, look, I covered the Charlotte shooting. Uh, the AME shooting. And thank God that chapter is about to be over with the almost sure conviction of Dylan Ruth, who I also predict is going to get the death penalty, in in part because I think he wants it, by the way. I I don't think Dylan Ruth is – I think Dylan Ruth is fine with dying. Uh, Let me me put it that way. I don't think he's a guy who's got a strong will to live at this point. But uh, thank God that's going to be over. But I thought her handling of that – in particularly her handling of the Confederate flag issue, and I say this not as a fan of the Confederate flag, but just that was such a distraction from what was going on and, and from anything that was going on. So I think, she, I think she did pander on that stuff. But like I say, that's part of the reason I think I'm somewhat glad she's out of – because don't forget, it takes her out of – it takes her out of the game. Now, obviously, not everybody. Trump, in some cases, like Terry Branstad, the, the Iowa governor who's going to be our ambassador to China, he's not punishing Branstad. Does that make sense? But in the case of Haley, yeah. I think it's in some senses he's just getting a major critic off the political stage. So I'm not a huge fan of hers, but, but like you say, uh, in the position that she's in, I'm fine with that. Like, I'm fine with it. I'm not overjoyed. Yeah, she's not She's not a factor, I'm, really, kind of. Yeah, she's not a factor. Anyway, Judy, thanks very much for calling. I really appreciate you uh, you calling in. Thank you. I enjoy the show. Keep it up. Yeah, that's great. Thanks. Call back anytime. You're listening to Radio Stranahan. It's 10 minutes past the hour. Remember, you can call in. I told my I told my son today, I said, my goal is to get more callers. Because here's the thing. I don't want to give away all my secret plans, but I'm doing the radio show for a very specific reason. I'm doing this two-hour-a-day radio show for a specific reason that I can't tell you about yet, and I don't say that to tease you, but I don't mind if it does. But I'm doing it for a very specific reason. And so part of what I want to do is get people to call in because I want to get used to dealing with callers. Does that make sense? Consider it on-the-job training or whatever. But that's why it's important. So that's why I appreciate your calls. If you want to call in and be part of the show, 619-924-0786. Had someone on Twitter talking to me earlier saying they don't completely understand the situation in Aleppo. They tweeted that while I was interviewing Seb Gorka and asked if I could explain it a little bit and I can, of course, because I am America's finest reporter, and because I was reporting on Aleppo three years ago, uh, I, I, I've talked about this a number of times, but I went to Beirut, Lebanon in September of 2013, and 
when I was over there, and there's a caller on the line, I'll take you in just one sec, let me just finish this point. Uh, when I was there, I interviewed people from Aleppo. So here's what's going on. Aleppo is a northern Syrian country, uh, the city, forgive me. And Syria is a big country. You have to understand Syria is a big country. And part of the reason the civil war has raged on is because unlike some of these other countries, there's, it's hard to hold all of Syria at once. Okay? So Aleppo is in the far north up near Turkey. And Aleppo has been a constant battleground. They came in immediately. The rebels took in. It's also far from the capital of Damascus. The city Assad has to hold is Damascus because that's where the seat of power is in Syria. Does that make sense? So Aleppo was hard to hold. These jihadist rebels immediately took over Aleppo. And then in the past couple of weeks, really past since November, there was a new offensive in Aleppo where Assad and his allies, including the Russians and some Iranian troops, were trying to take Aleppo back from the jihadist terrorists. That's their term. But I think it's a fair term. Al-Nusra and these other groups, right? That's what's happening. And so in the past couple of days, right around the time that Hillary Clinton started talking, this is why Seb calls it a conspiracy theory. I think it's a conspiracy fact, but, but, but I, I defer to Seb on that. But what I'm saying is I've noticed since the offensive in Aleppo has been effective, suddenly we're talking about Russia and demonizing Russia. But that's a, that's a short, short version of Aleppo. If you have another question about it, feel free to call in. 619-924-0786. We're going to go to the 205 area code next. Caller from 205. You're on the air. What can I do for you? Haley, it's Kathy, and it's I'm one hey, Catherine. Hey. I'm one Catherine Sienna. Oh, I'm the Aleppo. That's right. You're the person who just asked about Aleppo. How did I get? Yeah. Did I answer what you wanted to know there? Or? Yes, but I'm still. I I don't want to be whacked out, and I'm bombarded, obviously, by the social media and pictures. And then the information flow of what's happened, as in what happened or how it looked before, Aleppo, and then how it looks now. And I, I guess so, I'm trying to gra- grapple with who did what. Does that make sense? Like, I, you explained well, really it, well, but I, I, so it so it does. So so uh, assume. You've got a city, I don't know, name, I'll pick Santa Barbara, California, because it's lovely. Birmingham, what where I'm I am. Right there. So I'll pick Birmingham, right? So let's yes. say g- jihadists took over Birmingham, okay. okay? And they were holding people hostage and kidnapping people. That was one thing. The Christians, a okay. lot of Christians, and right? Christians, but, but anybody. In Aleppo, right. i got to point right. out, they didn't, care. they didn't care who you were. They would okay. hold people That's what I'm trying to figure out if this was, tri- you know, tribal between religion, uh, the Muslims too. Uh, that's the other part I'm trying to filter through. So, so in Aleppo, they immediately the rebels took over the, what they call the rebels, but they're really jihadists, okay? okay? And those jihadists immediately started doing stuff like cutting off supply lines and taking people and whole areas hostage. And they said, the only way you can leave is if you pay us. And they did that to raise money, okay? And 
there was immediate fighting. Now, you may have heard this. This is not a newsflash, but war is destructive, right? So let's say jihadists took over Birmingham, right? What would happen is the U.S. would need to fight those jihadists, right? And in the process of fighting them, stuff is going to get broken, okay? And that's what's going to happen. Now, we also know that the jihadists in Aleppo were doing stuff like hiding in hospitals. And the way we know that is if you Google this, you'll find that the U.S. attacked a hospital recently, I want to say in Mosul, Iraq, but they attacked a hospital. Now, why did they attack a hospital? Answer, because the bad guys had hidden inside the hospital. Why do the bad guys hide inside the hospital? Because they know you're not supposed to attack a hospital. Does that make sense? In other yes, words, I, now the, I understand the, that ploy of what happened. Yes, these, these jihadists are not stupid. They know that people in the West in particular have rules of engagement, right? And we don't attack okay. the hospital. But, but the U.S. attacked the hospital in Mosul. How do I feel about that? I feel awesome about it. Does that make sense? In other words, on, I don't blame us for the enemy's tactics, okay? And if they chose to hide inside hospitals or if they use women and children as human shields, I'd like to avoid civilian casualties. But at the end of the day, if you wimp out on that stuff, you just prolong everybody's agony. That's all you're doing is you're prolonging everybody's agony. And so what they've learned is the, the West and the Western media responds to that. But what the Western media doesn't tell you, who they never explain, is who these rebels are. They never tell you, oh, by the way, these are jihadists who are doing this. So, and then the U.S. piles on. And so they'll say, Russia bombarded a hospital. And it's, I guarantee you that's into it. But I know why Russia bombarded. And if you if you listen, and again, I, I don't say this, the, re, the way I try to make people smarter is really I try to encourage people to do their own research a right. little bit and then make up their own minds. So if you right. look at Russian media and Syrian media, they call the people they're fighting terrorists. We call them the rebels. Now, which one okay. is right? Then that's what you, you need to research. Thank but, you. The, but it's it's. There's no question. You heard Seb say it earlier. Look up Al Nusra. N U S R A. Al Nusra. There's no question who Al Nusra is. They're a, a solid. They're a Salafi Sunni supported by Saudi Arabian extremist radical Muslim extremist group. That's who they are. They want to take over Syria and make it a. Uh, uh, under Sharia law, put it like that. They want they want it to be under Sharia law. That's their goal. That's Al Nusra's goal. Look it up. Al Nusra is part of who we're supporting in Syria, not directly, because we know that Al Nusra is bad. But what we do is we support these other fighters who are really connected and allied with Al Nusra, right? So we'll say, like John McCain will say, well, we don't fund those guys, but we're funding their allies and. In many cases, people who we funded, armed, and trained, that the CIA funded, armed, and trained, ended up joining al-Nusra. 
So in Syria in particular, it's frightening how much we're on the side of the bad guys. And it just shows how this whole war on ISIS, al-Nusra is not ISIS. ISIS is slightly worse than al-Nusra because they're much crazier. And they're not bound by anything. Al-Nusra, because they're backed by Saudi Arabia, at least has a little bit of a leash on them, a little tiny bit, right? A little bit. ISIS has no leash at all. They're just completely independent and they're, they're hardcore. But al-Nusra is about as bad as ISIS. And they have the same goals, ultimately. They want Sharia law and everything else. And so there's a lot of play back and forth between these groups. And that's why when Trump said that uh, Obama created ISIS, he was correct, largely. ISIS became empowered after the Syrian civil war and after Iraq, uh, after Obama pulled the troops the way he did out of Iraq. Does that make sense? Does, does that... Uh envelope the Arab Spring? Yes, it absolutely does. So let's talk about that. So as soon as Obama t- took over, by the way, the caller, the caller from the 637 area code, I hear you and we'll get to, you, we'll get to all the calls. Um, so when Obama took over, almost immediately, within a few months after taking office in 2009, Obama made what the speech that's called the New Beginning speech in Cairo. And if you go to YouTube and type in Obama New Beginning, you'll find that speech. And in that speech, he basically laid the groundwork for what became the Arab Spring. Now, the Arab Spring started in Tunisia with a, a food cart vendor, but really it very quickly spread to become an Islamist uprising. So in, let's take a simple example. Egypt, right? In Egypt, we helped get rid of Hosni Mubarak, who was the dictator in Egypt. But who was he replaced by? He was replaced by the Muslim Brotherhood. He was replaced by the Akwan, the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt, who were worse than Mubarak. They were so bad that the Egyptians threw them out pretty quickly. And they were backed by, the Muslim Brotherhood was backed by Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama. And they wanted... Sharia law, they'd been out, the Muslim Brotherhood had been largely outlawed in Egypt under Mubarak. And so the way I like to explain the Middle East is you basically got two options in almost any Middle Eastern country. There's military strongmen, and then there's religious strongmen, okay? That's it. And the military strongmen, like Bashar al-Assad, like Hosni Mubarak, like uh, Saddam Hussein, these are bad guys, okay? They're not good guys. But as Seb pointed out, the alternative is generally a religious strongman, and they're worse in my opinion. And the reason they're worse, particularly the Sunnis, is that they want to spread Islam throughout the world. They're not content to just – you see, a guy like Saddam Hussein, as bad as, as, bad as he was – he was contained in the Middle East, pretty much, right? A guy like Bashar al-Assad, as bad as he is, he just wants, you know, he he just wants to stay in control of Syria. He's not trying to uh, overthrow the United States and replace it with a caliphate with Korea government. That's what these religious leaders do. And so we we got rid of Mubarak, and things got worse for Egypt. Things did not get better, and they still haven't recovered. So that's what happened with the Arab Spring. The Arab Spring was co-opted 
almost immediately these religious jihadists. And in country after country after country, that's who won. But they couldn't defeat Syria. They couldn't defeat Assad. And so when the Arab Spring started in Syria, it stalled because Assad fought back effectively. But this is what's created the civil war. So the Syrian civil war grew directly out of the Arab Spring. Absolutely, there's no question about it. Just look it up. You'll see that that's what happens. Does that make sense so far? Yes. My only other, one other thing was the U.N. and their culpability in this situation in Aleppo and what are white helmets? Is that a term associated with the U.N.? Uh, well, for keeping so people, or yeah, they they are. So here's the problem with the UN. Okay, uh, the problem with the UN is: do you have any idea what the biggest block of countries or people is in the UN? There's one group that's the biggest block in the UN. Do you, do you know what it is? It's not NATO. No. It's not. Do you know what it is? It's called the Organization of Islamic Cooperation, or the OIC, okay? The Organization of Islamic Cooperation is the single biggest entity, I don't know how else to put it, uh, at, at, the United, at the United Nations. And let me see, I want to I get the number right here. But it's dozens and dozens of countries. I'm looking, I'm looking, for, I'm, I'm looking it up right now. But it's dozens. I forget the exact number off to him, but I think it's about, yeah, 57 states. There we go, 57. I, I knew it was 40 or 50. So it's 57 states. 57 different countries make up the OIC. So in other words, there's a tremendous amount of Islamist pull at the United Nations, okay? And because the United States has chosen to take the side of these Islamist rebels in Syria, it's sort of neutered any, it's sort of blunted any impact we might have in the situation. Does that make sense? So yeah. that's what's been going on there. And the UN, uh, HCR, the other, the, the other people involved, you've got to go through the filter. So like I say, that's what I recommend. This is how I ended up going to Beirut. I would read the Syrian news agency, read RT, read Russian, and then also read the U.S. news. And then what you have to do is you have to look at, okay, these people, and by the way, don't trust anybody. Does that make sense? In other words, yes, trust and verify. When I, when, I read, when I read Syrian news, I go, okay, they're giving me about 30% of the truth. And then I read U.S. news, and I go, they're giving me about 30% of the truth. And then I can kind of fill in the other 30%. I go, okay, here's what they're not saying. So I don't want to ever be an apologist for a guy like Bashar al-Assad. And when I say he's better than the alternative, I just literally mean the dude is better than the alternative. But he's still not very good. And, and so that's the issue. Anyway, Kathy, thanks, thanks very much for calling in. I appreciate your call. And uh, call back anytime. I'm going to take another caller right after this. You're listening to Radio Stranahan. Call us. Number if you want to call in is 619-924-0786. That number again, 619-924-0786.
But yeah, and, so is Obama. I, w- I would I wouldn't disagree with that. Yeah, I wouldn't disagree with that either. But but the <laughs> point is, it's it's not weird if you know what I mean. It's not weird if yeah. No, I, it's I don't part like of his Arabia, job, if you will, as a leader, is to keep control of his uh, territory for his citizens to live. That that's right. Now let's let, let's bring up the scarier part of this, though, Kim, because let's because this gets scarier. So when we talk about Syrian refugees, mm-hmm. okay, when we talk about the Syrian refugees who are being brought into this country, now so we've established, and again, this is part of the whole media uh, cluster. I'll just call it. I I can't swear. I'll call it a cluster bomb. Let's go with that. The media cluster bomb on on this whole topic, where literally it's an upside down world where the United States is supporting the jihadists, right? Right. When right. we bring in when when we bring in Syrian refugees, do you think that the refugees who supported Assad or the refugees who opposed Assad? Who do you think those people I... are who are coming in? Probably opposed Assad. Yeah, that's that's um, exactly right. They're Sunni. It, when they've done surveys, they're overwhelmingly Sunni Muslims who are coming. Okay. In. Uh, okay. Just to clarify, Bashar al-Assad is an Alawi Muslim. It's a Shia sect. Okay. So he's an he's an Alawi Muslim, and yeah, it is. And because the Alawites are a minority, that's important to understand. Assad is an Alawi. But Alawites Just are like Obama is a minority in this country. Got it. Yes, but what he, but what what Assad had to do, and by the way, this is why Christians are safer under Assad, since he's a minority, and there's lots of Sunni hatred of the Alawites and the Shias, right? Mm-hmm. He had to form alliances with the Christians. With Does the that Christians. Make sense? In other words, and the Coptics. Yes. So. So he said, basically, metaphorically, but over the years, he's been to the Christians, I will protect you from these Sunnis who, are, who, are, who want to wipe you out. And that's why Christians are safer there under Assad. Because, and by the way, it was, it's been similar in other countries. Christians have been safer under these strongmen dictators. It's not because they, it's not because a guy like Assad necessarily loves Christians. I don't know what his opinion is on that. But uh, but assume he, assume he doesn't. It's a very practical reason. I don't even have to know what his motives are. It's practical. He's a minority. Sure. So he to do that. But what's, what's he adds interesting, to his numbers. Though, that's exactly right. But the, the, what's interesting, and this is what nobody wants to talk about, I actually had, I'm not going to name who it is, but I had a friend recently who uh, he told me, who said to me, they said, I don't know if you're right on this Twin Falls reporting you've been doing. I worked for a few months. But what's going on in Twin Falls, Idaho, it involves Chobani Yogurt, Hamdi Ulakai, who's the head of Chobani Yogurt, and he's a big advocate for the refugee program. And I've written about how the refugee program has affected Twin Falls, right? And so right. It's, a, it's a longer story. I'm just trying to give you a short version of it. But this friend of mine said, uh, well, I don't know if you're right about that. And she said, uh, what's wrong with him hiring refugees? And I, I was sad. I was crestfallen. 
because that's never been the point of my reporting is Hamdi Ulukai is bad for hiring rep. Just that yeah. in and of itself, that doesn't make anybody bad. But he's, a, he's an advocate. He's a political advocate. And we had Hilbert Nelson on last Friday's show talking about this. And if, if people want to get a good reset on that story, last Friday's episode is a good way to do it. But the point is he's an advocate for the refugee program. And one of the scary things to me about the refugee program right now as it exists, as it's being administered, is that we're letting in people who are absolutely hostile to the United States and to the West and who want Sharia law. Because the refugees from Syria we're letting in are the people we should be fighting. But in this screwed up system, it's the people we've been supporting. And so this is what's frightening to me about the refugee crisis, is that in fact, we're bringing in the wrong people. And 99% of them are Muslim. And I'm not even one of those people who believes uh, I'm not one of those people who believes, and I, there's very few people who know this subject who believe this, who like all Muslims are bad. There's no difference. Oh, I don't think anyone, that either. Right? I don't, th- I don't think yeah, that either. I, no, no. There, and, there, there, and, it's, and, like, and, it's like there's good Baptists, and then there's the Westboro Baptist Church. Got it? Right, yeah. You know, I mean, yes. so if you just look at the Westboro Baptist Church, you're going to think all Baptists are bad, but no, that's not the case. That's how I kind of look at it. Well, no, I agree. That's a great metaphor. The, the, the thing I use is what I talked about with Egypt earlier. If all Muslims are bad and want Sharia, why did they throw out the Muslim Brotherhood? You see what I'm saying? Right. In other words, exactly. They, mm-hmm. they, they, they overthrew Hosni Mubarak. They got the Muslim Brotherhood in there. And then most people in the country are like, hey, this is worse. If all Muslims wanted Sharia, they never would have thrown out the Muslim Brotherhood. They would have been hallelujah, or whatever you say, alu akbar, whatever. They would have, uh, <laughs> hallelujah akbar. They would have done whatever they, they do there and said, this is exactly who they want. But instead, they threw them out. And I point that out to people. And people typically don't have a response to that because uh, they can't explain it. They can't explain it. But the fact that they threw out the Sharia-wanting Muslim Brotherhood tells me something. So... Right. That being said, when I, when I hear 99% of the people are Muslim who are the refugees, that's worrisome. But what's really worrisome is how many of them are Sunnis who are opposed to Bashar al-Assad, which means it's likely that a number of them wanted Sharia law in Syria. And that's not who I want coming into this country. I don't Absolutely. want people who want Sharia coming into the country. Right. Because it's diametrically opposed. It's just, it's just, it's not, it's not good for our system. It's now, Jimmy, let me ask you the question today. Since you're on the line, what do you think, what, give me a, give me your rating. How do you think Donald Trump's cabinet picks are looking so far? By the way, if you want to call in 619-924-0786, we have a few minutes. So, Kimmy, what, what is your, what are your ratings on the cabinet picks so far? I'm going to give him an A. I would give him an A plus, but there's maybe a couple that I have a question on, but I'm going to give him an A, and uh, I'll give him extra credit if after three months they turn out to be, like, phenomenal. Um, All I know is when his kids were talking at the convention, um, the point that all three of them happened to say, and I I found this very interesting, 
is that their dad has an uncanny knack for figuring out people's strengths and weaknesses, even if they don't know them themselves. And he's able to plug somebody into a position that maybe they didn't necessarily think they were, you know, a strong suit for, and they fly beautifully. Um, That he knows talent, he can figure it out, and he can make people excel. It's just like when Ben Carson was put in charge of HUD, and everybody's like, well, HUD, he should be, you know, Surgeon General, he should be HHS. And I'm sitting there thinking, no, he has the sensibility for HUD. He's really going to clean that thing up. He he grew up under it. That makes sense. So, you know, I give him an A, a and I'll give him uh, extra credit once I see how they're doing. Well, I think, look, I think in particular, since you brought up Carson, I agree with you. I think that was a great pick for exactly the reason you said. What was interesting about the Carson pick was if you watch social media, was how Ben Carson got savaged for being chosen for that. And the other thing that he got savaged for, which I think was very interesting, is for admitting that he didn't think he was qualified because he didn't have any experience. He's never run a governmental agency. How often do you hear a politician admit hey, you know, I'm not, I've never done this before, so I might not be qualified. To me, that was an expression of humility and reality and honesty. And and not reality in terms of, I don't think he can do it, because I do think he can do it. He's an incredibly accomplished person, right? Uh, Absolutely. But how rare is it? But what was interesting to me was how he got attacked for it. How refreshing is it? To get a politician, and, and Carson's a lot more than a politician, right? But how, how incredible is it to get somebody going into public service? And by the way, i got to point out that if, if Ben Carson was on the left and he'd done the same thing, now maybe I think people on the right probably would have attacked him for it, but I don't think it's a, it's a, a fair attack. I think that it was simply Carson being the guy who he is, which is he's, he's a soft-spoken thoughtful, humble person saying, I don't know if I'm cut out for this because I've never done it. Now, here's the thing. Right. If, if, it makes me feel if Carson is six months into the job and feels like he can't do it, he's not going to try to hold on to power. He's going to go, you know what? This I'm is, not this cut is out more than this. I thought, and you need to find somebody else, and I'm, I'll stay here till you find somebody, and thank you very much for the opportunity. That's what Ben Carson will do. He's got a practical yeah, I, position, you know, and, I, and I'm an RN, and the first thing that I want to hear a doctor say is if they don't know, I want them to say, I don't know. Let me research it, and I'll get back with you, as opposed to going ahead and barreling ahead and pretending that they know and then making a huge mistake. Um, so I appreciate his humility, and I think he comes at it as with that kind of an attitude. So I appreciate well, that. Well, this is, this is also what's so irritating to me as a journalist or pundit or whatever I am at any given moment. It's so rare that you hear people say that. And I learned a few years ago that, you know, if you, if you talk about politics and write about politics as much as I do, people expect you to be an instant expert. And by the way, this is a, a, a case where I have some sympathy for politicians, okay? Um, mm-hmm. poli- politicians are expected. I was at a Trump event in Iowa just before the election. 
And yeah, uh, I, I I watched that Periscope that she threw out there. Yeah. When I, I interviewed Steve King afterwards, who I know and I like tremendously, and uh-huh. I I was waiting my turn to interview him because he was talking to constituents, and I didn't want him to be rushed in the interview. So I'm like, let him talk to constituents. When you're in a position like Steve King, okay, a representative, mm-hmm. a senator, your constituents come up to you, and they're going to ask you questions, and your job is to know the answer. So if they say, hey, what's going to happen with the ethanol subsidy? What's going to happen with this, right. with that, right? And so right. um, one of the reasons I like King is he's got a very good quality. I've engaged in a few hours of conversations with King at various points. And I'll tell you one thing about Steve King. He's curious. He's genuinely curious. So we were talking about the Internet tax. It was off the record. It was a private. We were just talking. Two guys uh, uh, shooting it about politics, okay? Right. I mentioned mm-hmm. the Internet tax, and Steve said he, he didn't agree with my position on it. He said, well, let me ask you, why do you think that? Why, why do you think it? And he meant it. He was literally asking me. Why you had an opposing viewpoint. That's right. He didn't just roll out a speech. And I don't Mm -hmm. remember who was right. and I'm sure I was right. But but anyway, but I appreciated the fact. No, I did. I I, I really did appreciate the fact that King was curious. And whenever people are like, well, do you think people, when I talk about, this stuff about Saudi Arabia that I talk about, the Muslim World League. People are like, well, do you think Donald Trump knows this? And I'm like, I don't have any idea. But I don't think it's Donald Trump's job to know everything. And this is why Absolutely. when he's saying when he's saying he's not going to go to every daily briefing, mm-hmm. I'm like, I'm like, okay. It's not like nobody's going. <laughs> well, and, like and then on top of it, I don't know if you caught that because they kind of spun it afterwards with um, George Will and all those guys. But he actually said, I was told, Mr. President, this is exactly the same as it was yesterday, and then they would start in again. And he would say, if it's the same as it was yesterday, don't go through the hour. You know, let me know when it's different. But if it's the same, I can remember from yesterday what you told me. So, and I, I think that that got lost. But I found that interesting. In, in other words, he said that they would come in and say, Mr. President, nothing has changed from yesterday. Let's start the briefing. And he'd say, if nothing's changed since yesterday, don't give me the briefing. I've got, you know, I've got to spend my time on other things. But I, I think that got lost um, in, in the hype. But, yeah, well, um, being, when I was... You're being, you're being nice by saying it got lost. The term I would use is buried. Because okay, it got buried. It got they, buried. Yeah. I don't I don't know all these journalistic terms, but um, <laughs> but yeah. One time I worked well, at a nurse advice line, and I had a person call in once, and they said uh, they asked a question, da 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 da, and I said, "Hang on a second, let me just look that up for you." And I had probably twenty books on my desk, you know, and they said, "Wait a minute, you're a nurse, you're supposed to know everything," and I said, "No, I'm a nurse, I'm supposed to know where to look to get you well, the no, answer," and they went. And they that's went, funny. oh, no, good enough. No, that's exactly right. When I used, to do, I used to do training and video production, and I have this thing that I do when I do seminars. I still do it to this day. When I do a seminar live in front of people, 
And if you've been to seminars, you know the, the, there's a format for seminars, right? Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. you know, you learn the seminar, and then what do they do at the end of the day? They do the Q&A, right? Right. So I do a complete reverse format, and I explain it to people up front. I say, I'm going to start with the Q. I'm going to start by asking you what you want to know. Because the way these work is, I'm doing a seven-hour seminar. We're going to be sitting here all day. There'll be a lunch break. And what happens is people are sitting in the audience, and they, want to, they came to the seminar because they want to learn how to do one specific thing. How do I make mm-hmm. my drone do this kind of shot or whatever it is, right? Right. And I, I'm teaching, but I don't know that that person wants to know that, right? Now, right. Then what happens is they wait all day, they wait all day. Now, it's 20 minutes before the end of the seminar. I'm supposed to, this is where the Q&A is supposed to happen. And now everyone's like planning what they're going to have for dinner and they have to go to the bathroom and they're ready to get out of there. And so suddenly that's when people decide, okay, I'm going to do the question and answer period. Now, it's the worst time to do it. So what I tell people is I say, look, let me start off. I'm going to let you ask questions and I'm going to write them down. And I may answer some of them right now, and some of them I may just hold on to, and I'm going to have my list here. And that way I know what people came to learn right up front, and then I can do something about it. Because I can't Mm – let's say they ask me a question, there's 15 minutes left, but it's going to take a half hour to explain it adequately. And and I know that 10 other people would be interested in the answer, right? Right. Well, I don't have I don't have any time now. I either go late, which is difficult for some people, because uh, they have plans. They, the seminar is supposed to end at five. If it goes till seven, you know they have plans. So as mm-hmm. that's the way I do things, and it's specifically because um, it's exactly what you just said. I learned very quickly. My job was not as a teacher to know everything. It's to explain stuff, and. Mm-hmm. If that means I have to go do research, I used to go when I used to do seminars, I used to go on my lunch break, and if somebody had asked me a question I didn't know the answer to, I'd call the company who made the product. I'd get on the line with tech support people I knew, and I'd say, hey, mm-hmm. somebody's asking me about this this situation. I don't know the answer. What do I do? Then I'd come back from lunch, and I would look like a genius. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, well, but I told him, I, I, what, I, what had I done? I called tech support, and now I'm able to explain it in such a way that, it, that it's comprehensible to people. And frankly, that's a lot of what I find I have to do as a journalist. The trick isn't getting the information. I know a lot. I research a lot, but I'm not writing or talking. I'm researching. Right. The trick isn't the research. I know a lot about the institutional left. The trick is trying to explain it in a way that's interesting and compelling and, most importantly, makes an impact on people's lives. I can say to you there's such a thing as the institutional left, right? That's easy. But Mm -hmm. if I explain why, for instance, your kid's getting a lousy education at public school and it has to do with the conflation of the teacher's union working with protest groups, and those protest groups work with these community organizer groups who are working with these lawyers and these legislators, and they're all funded by Kellogg's and George Soros and the Ford Foundation. 
So every one of those groups, right, is funded. Now it might make a difference to you. You see what I'm saying? Now it might Absolutely. make, okay, I don't know why my kid's getting a lousy education, but now it makes sense. And so the trick that I have to do constantly as a journalist is it's not gathering data. There's plenty of data. Sometimes, you know, there's so much, sometimes you're still researching. But uh, usually it's just presenting the facts. That's what the trick is. Anyway, Kimmy, once again, thanks very much for calling in. I appreciate it. Call back anytime. Take care. Bye. Take care. It is 52 after the hour. You're listening to Radio Stranahan. Thanks to everybody who called in. And by the way, i got to get a new calling bumper, but I'm going to keep playing this one because yeah, I don't have a new call-in bumper yet. By the way, I make these my, myself. I don't do the, the voiceover, but let's play the call-in bumper again. It's so exciting, by the way, when Steve Bannon, for instance, hosts the radio show, he'd have people to hit buttons for him. I get to do it myself on Blog Talk Radio, so it's, it's pretty exciting. Let's try it again. Every time. There we go. You're listening to Radio uh, Stranahan. Call us. Six one nine nine two four zero seven eight six is the number. Just a couple minutes left. About six minutes left in the show. If anyone wants to call in at the last minute, that's fine. Let me just finish a topic I was talking about a little bit earlier. And by the way, thanks to everybody who called in today. I really appreciate it. And thanks to Seb Gorka for appearing on the show. We have uh, a more great guests coming up this week. We, uh, we're going to be talking to a filmmaker later in the week who was assaulted when he tried to cover uh, protest. I'll, I'll let him tell the story, but that's that's great. We have other great guests coming up this week, so you want to stay tuned to Radio Stranahan all week. And by the way, I would be remiss if I did not mention again, we're looking for sponsors. We're looking for advertisers. If you want to hear your message here, instead of me talking about why I need advertisers, get in touch with me, Stranahan on Twitter, Stranahan at gmail.com. We're going to be doing a show for a few more weeks for a small financial investment. You can be reaching my audience, not just here on Radio Stranding, tweeting it out and so on and so forth, tell you what to do. I want to talk about the topic I was talking about at the beginning, which is living in a liberal culture. And this goes back to what I was just saying to Kim, our last caller, about the institutional left. The institutional left is a phrase, first person I ever heard use it was Andrew Breitbart. And it's something that I think people, they hear Andrew talk about it, they maybe know what it means, sort of, kind of. They get it broadly, but they couldn't really define it. And so a lot of what I've been doing in the work that that I'm doing right now at Breitbart, exposing Kellogg's, for instance, is trying to explain to people what the institutional left is, why it makes a big difference. The institutional left is different groups. You've got lawyers like the National Lawyers Guild and the ACLU. You've got community activist groups, and there's a million of them. Move, you know, La Raza, community organizer group. You've got Kazahusta. You've got all just thousands and thousands of these groups, right? You've got politicians who work, and, the, and these things all work together in a net, okay? They're all connected. You've got media, but I want to focus on media for a second here. Because the media is not just the news media, although that's part of it. The media is not just entertainment, although that's part of it. It's also things like advertising. 
You know, we live in a post-Olinsky world. If you're familiar with Saul Alinsky, Saul Alinsky is the father of community organizing, acknowledged as such, and a big influence on both Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama. Hillary Clinton knew Saul Alinsky. Saul Alinsky was a radical. He wrote the book Rules for Radicals. And the basic message of Saul Alinsky was, hey, look, you can have more of an impact. Don't forget the audience he was talking to in the 60s was a bunch of dirty hippies with long hair who were trying to levitate buildings and dropping acid. And Olinsky's suggestion was that that might not be the most effective way. And these people were openly calling for a communist revolution in the streets. Olinsky's message was essentially, take it slow, cut your hair, put on a suit, and you're gonna have more impact if you affect change politically. You think Hillary Clinton learned that lesson? I think she did. And again, Hillary Clinton knew Alinsky. She wrote uh, a paper about him. She corresponded with Alinsky. Barack Obama learned community organizing from an Alinsky-started group. So these are people who are profoundly affected by Alinsky. And the Alinsky message is very straightforward. Work in the political system. And he had different techniques he would use. And that's what Rules for Radicals is about. It's a collection of different techniques that Alinsky suggested. But as much as we're in a post-Alinsky world, we're also in a post-Madman world. Did you ever watch the show Mad Men? I love that series. And what's very, very interesting is that you can see the growth and change in advertising from the 40s and 50s into the 60s. And part of what they started to learn was psychology. Part of what they started to learn was focus groups and demographics and the way to influence people and the way to get people to think. Now, this is stuff that I know quite a bit about. And I studied it because I've worked in marketing. And as a political person, doing consulting, for instance, even writing as a journalist, you're trying to persuade people, right? It's about persuasion. And so if you're going to persuade people, it helps to know what the tools of persuasion are. For instance, we know that fear is a motivator. We know that scarcity is a motivator, right? These are the things that motivate people. And by the way, these same things, this is what a lot of people in social media, I don't talk about this stuff this, that much. I used to. Before I got heavily involved writing for Breitbart in politics, before I was working full-time as a journalist, as my job, I know quite a bit about internet marketing and that whole thing. And that's why sometimes, like when I see the stuff Mike Turnovich is doing, Mike's got a great book that he's talked about called Influence. He didn't write it. But he used to read it to people on Periscopes. I'd slip in sometimes, and he was reading it, right? So Mike knows and understands influence. I wish he'd get stories right more. I wish he'd care about – I wish he'd add what the guy knows about influence to getting to, – to having a slavish devotion to the truth. If he was as committed to the truth as he was to influencing people, that'd be awesome. That'd be great. But the Democrats know this stuff. And by the way, the Republicans know this stuff, too. If you listen to a guy like Frank Luntz, that's what's going on. Anyway, I'll have more to say about this later. That's all. Till next time, I'm Lee Stranahan.